0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Uh, Reading from verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. No figure in human history, be it religious or secular, blooms larger than Jesus of Nazareth. No man has been the inspiration for more art and poetry and songs and sculptures and stories than Jesus of Nazareth. No one is a life that has been so enduring, that has been so inspirational, that's been so controversial, more lived for, more died for, more fought for, more fought against, more devoted to than Jesus of Nazareth. And after 2,000 years, this carpenter from Nazareth is still known to billions of people around the world and is served and loved by millions of people on earth, No other name is more revered and no other name is more blasphemed than Jesus' name. How can it be that a young man from an obscure family in a backwater town in a tiny little country that was subjugated uh, by a mighty superpower, how come that he rose to great prominence around the world, even to this very day, especially after he died a criminal's death on a cross two millenniums ago. Surely, any right-thinking person would realize that Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man. Surely, they would understand that he was more than just a miracle worker, more than just an inspirational speaker, more than just a brilliant communicator. He wasn't, as some imagine, just some kind of legend or fable. He wasn't, as some claim, a a, a made-up Messiah, a supposed Savior. He was, and he still is, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Larry King, the famous American talk show host who has interviewed probably every important person on planet Earth over the years, he was asked one time, who in history would you have loved to have interviewed? And he immediately said, Jesus Christ. And then they said, well, what would you have asked him? And here was his reply. I would have asked him if indeed he was virgin born because the answer to that would define history. Arnold Townby, the famous historian, said about Jesus, he says, find the body of that Jew and Christianity will tumble into ruins. Let me just quote you Three quotations from three uh, famous people. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers, speaking about Jesus, he said, he is by, by, "'He is by whom all things were made, "'and who was made one of all things, "'who is the revealer of the Father, "'the creator of the Mother, "'the Son of God by the Father without a Mother, "'the Son of Man by the Mother without a Father.'" the word who is God before all time, the word made flesh in a fitting time, the maker of the sun, yet made under the sun, ordering all the ages from the bosom of the father, hallowing a day of today from the womb of the mother, remaining in the former, coming forth from the latter, author of the heaven and the earth, sprung under the heaven out of the earth, unutterably wise in his wisdom, a babe without utterance filling the world, lying in a manger. Philip Brooks, who was a great eighteenth century American preacher, he wrote one of the famous carols that we sing. This was attributed to him. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was thirty. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office He never had a family or owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And when he was dead, they laid him in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend." 19 centuries has come and gone. Now it's 20 centuries. It's come and gone. And today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as has that one solitary life. J. Sidlow Baxter, the late Sidlow Baxter, great British uh, preacher and teacher. He said, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What a wonderful Savior is Christ. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the second person in the divine Godhead, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Christians do not believe as Muslims say we believe in three gods. We believe in one God manifested in three persons. All co-equal, all eternal. Their function is different. As far as the function of the Godhead is concerned, it's the Father first, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third. But all of them are God in three persons. Although the actual word trinity never appears in Scripture, but the principle, the triunity of the Godhead is all throughout Scripture. Right at the very beginning in creation, let us, plural, let us make man in our image even at his baptism, the heavens opened. God spoke and said, Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son on whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit then descended as a dove and lit upon him. In John 14, Philip said, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. One in essence, one in substance. 1 John 5 and 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Colossians 2 and 9, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When Jesus came to earth, He did not lose His deity, otherwise He would not have been God in flesh. But he voluntarily gave up his rights and privileges of deity. Did you notice that when Jesus was on earth, he he always referred to the Father? He says, The works that I do, the Father does. The words that I speak, the Father speaks. I do nothing of myself. I only do what the Father wants. And so he never acted independently. Even in the garden he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. In John 5, he says, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. And in that great few verses in Philippians 2, uh, which theologians call the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying of Christ. Let me read it to you just in the New Living Translation. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God, he made himself nothing. He took the humble position as a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. This is the Christ that we love and know and serve. In 1 Timothy 3, 16, it says, Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. You see, since the creation of the word, God had manifested himself in mighty works and miraculous acts, and his creative power was on display for all to see. So that Paul says in Romans 1 so that man is without excuse. All man has got to do is to go out of an evening and look into the night sky and say, That's God's handiwork. And well, they don't do that. They don't do that. Yet it was only when Jesus came, only when Jesus came, that God was manifest in the flesh. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full Of grace and full of truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a powerful statement given to Peter from the very heart of God Himself. Not something he thought up, not something he imagined, not something that was just tripped off the tip of his tongue. With something that was revealed to him by the Father into his heart. All life is in the hands of Jesus. All judgment is in the hands of Jesus. In John chapter 5... In verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For the father, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but, listen, but has committed all judgment to the Son." You see, as Christians, we rarely think of Jesus as the judge. We think of it Jesus as our Savior, as our healer, as our supplier, as our coming king. But he's also the judge of all the earth. And the scripture makes it clear, Jesus said it out of his own mouth. For the Father judges no one, but all has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so there will be the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says, that we should all appear before as believers. But then there's a great white throne of judgment for the unbelievers in Revelation 20. Look at that just for a second. And seeing that God, the Father, has committed all judgment into the hands of his Son, you can imagine who's sitting in this throne. It's the Son of God. In verse 11 of Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What a frightening prospect for the unbelievers. Great and small. Status will mean nothing in that day. Color, creed, nationality, Nothing everyone will be exposed to the white light of the Son of God where even the very angels will have to cover their faces and as men stand before Christ as their judge then they will remember every time they denied him or they blasphemed him or they mocked him. And every despot that's ever lived, and every dictator that has ever lived, and every Christ rejecter, every Christ denier will stand before the Son of God. And he will righteously judge them. And they will know who he is because they see the wounds in his hand and the wounds on his feet, and the wounds on his side. And they will have no argument. There will be no excuses. And every sin and every secret sin will come to their memory. And their names will not be in that book of life. But God is a meticulous record keeper. And even though they long since may be forgotten, and maybe the world has forgotten them, but God has not forgotten. And His Son will be their judge. I think it was Wearsby, I'm not sure, who said, The difference between this judgment place and any other place that we would know, he says, This will be a judge, but no jury. This will be a persecution, but no defense. This will be a sentence, but no appeal. so what I want to, and we'll go further, what I want to instill into you tonight that Jesus is just more than our Savior, more than our healer, more than the one who meets our needs, that he is the judge of all of the earth and one day will judge all of the earth and one day we as believers will stand before his judgment seat, not like the great white throne, not to be condemned, but to see what rewards, if any, that we're going to get and receive from him. Something else about Jesus, he's the creator of all things. The creator of all things. What does it say in John chapter 1, right at the very beginning? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Think of that. And without him, nothing in this universe, nothing that was made was made without him. And in Hebrews chapter 1, Verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to us in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, note this, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. What a creator is Jesus Christ. It is reckoned there's something between 100 and 200 billion stars in our little galaxy. There are countless billions of galaxies with countless billions of stars, and Jesus made every single one of them. I love Genesis 1.16 when it, when it starts to tell the creation story and the record there. And it, it's almost like a throwaway line. And it says, and he made the stars also. <laughs> As if that's nothing. He made the stars also. He made the stars also. The billions and billions and billions of stars. Yeah, he just made them also. <laughs> In Psalm 19... It talks about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and the night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone throughout the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And our Jesus made that. He made that. Forty years ago, this September, the 5th September 1977 to be exact, NASA sent up two spacecraft, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and they would explore the, the outer planets and they explored uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And then Voyager 2 would explore the great cold gas giants like Uranus and Neptune. And then Voyager 1 started to go out into interplanetary space. And traveling at 38,000 miles an hour, And by the way, they're still traveling at that today as I speak. They're still going strong. (laughs) And traveling at that incredible speed for 40 years, they now have traveled over 11 billion miles. And Voyager 1 got to the end of what we call our solar system because the sun spews out continually great jets of ionized Ions and plasma spews it out from all sides to 11 billion miles. And if it wasn't for our magnetic field around our Earth, we would be pulverized by that. But the coming against our magnetic field causes the aurora borealis, the northern Lights, those beautiful dancing lights. And that little spacecraft has got to the end of the influence of our sun, where it's down to almost zero. And it's still going. And now it's not going interplanetary space, but interstellar space. It's now heading out to the stars. And NASA said, traveling at 10, over 10 miles a second, (laughs) it's going to take something like 40,000 years. It comes under the influence of another star. It shows you the vastness, even of our little galaxies, and there's billions of galaxies, and Jesus made every single one of them. Glory to God. Psalm 147:4, he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. You know, man gives name to stars. You can go out and you can see Arcturus and you can see Polaris. And you can, We give them all names. But Jesus has named every one of them, all the billions and billions, and there's a name for every one of them. <laughs> but as well as the, the macro-vastness of the universe, Jesus also made a very intricate, incredibly intricate, intricate micro-world. So as well as looking through the telescope, we can look through the microscope, and it's still the handiwork of the Lord. Imagine, if you can, in one single drop of water, at the end of my finger, look, that little single drop of water, like a little teardrop. You can hardly see it if I drop it on that table. There are enough molecules in that one single drop of water, that if they were grains of sand, you could mix them into concrete and you could build a road half a mile wide, one foot deep from one side of America to the other. That molecules were grains of sand in one single drop of water. And Jesus made all of that. And we're only discovering through the microscope the wonders of the micro world that he made. Let's look at that another way. A molecule is a very small thing, obviously, isn't it? The Latin means little mass. Author Bill Bryson, he said in one of his books in a chapter called The Mighty Atom, he said a molecule is simply two or more atoms working in a stable arrangement. Two atoms of hydrogen, one of oxygen, and you have one molecule of water. He said, if we were at sea level and the temperature was at zero, and by the way, temperature at zero, sea level, relatively speaking, there'd be a lot less molecules, sorry, a lot more molecules than even if we were higher up. Do you hear the phrase, the air is thin? Do you ever think what that means, the air is thin? As suppose to the air is dense. When you're at sea level, the air is dense. Why? Because of all the billions and billions and billions of molecules and atoms. But the higher you go into the atmosphere, those who are climbing Everest are finding that they, they thin out. There's not as many. And so oxygen becomes very thin. In fact... If you rub your hands when you're cold, do that, you feel heat instantly. You know why that is? It's because all those atoms are rubbing together. They're causing friction. But when you're climbing Everest, they're very far apart, and there's a lot less of them, so it's very hard to get heat. There's less friction. So he says, at sea level, a temperature of zero degrees Celsius, one cubic centimeter of air, that's, that's the size of a sugar lump roughly the size of a sugar lump. There are 45 billion, billion molecules in one cubic centimeter of air. And each of them contains two or more atoms. That's a lot, isn't it? If you were to stand shoulder to shoulder, half a million atoms, shoulder to shoulder like that, like soldiers, they could hide behind a human hair. And Jesus made... All of that. So he's more than just her saviour, isn't he? He's more than just her healer, he's more than just the one who meets her needs. He's the judge of all the earth and he's the creator of the whole universe. Everything you see, including us, are made of atoms and molecules. And every molecule in your body you have chromosomes. Forty six to be exact, twenty three from your father, twenty three from your mother your chromosomes contain DNA, which is said to be the the most extraordinary chemical on the face of the earth. And it's only recently, very recently, that we've come to understand DNA. It's only through the power of the microscope we've been able to see it, actually. And each strand of DNA is about two meters long and it contains about 3.2 billion letters of clothing, and that is the blueprint of your whole entire body. One single strand of DNA, just one, contains all the blueprint for your body. Color of your hair, the color of your eyes, color of the pigmentation of your skin, shape of your ears, your nose, your mouth, your feet, your toes, everything. It's all in that little piece of DNA. It's estimated that you have 20 million kilometers of DNA in your body. That's a lot of information, isn't it? No wonder the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm nearly through with this little bit in a minute. One chromosome contains enough information which would be the equivalent of 500 million words. Now, that doesn't make much sense to you, but let me put it to you this way. There's a book I have in my hand. It is 230 pages. And just one chromosome in your body, just one, there's enough information coded into that would fill 5,500 of those books. And every molecule you've got has got 46 chromosomes. That's a quarter of a million books that size of information. And Jesus made all of that. He is truly the creator of the ends of the earth and of the universe and us too. And so turning water into wine, walking on the sea, raising the dead. It's no big job for the creator of the universe, <laughs> it's not. And we look at our need, and it seems so great, and so big, and maybe so impossible, but the Jesus who died for us is the same Jesus who created us and created the whole universe. And so he can He can meet the need of every man. No wonder he's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know who wrote this, so I can't give them credit. But it's called Jesus in every book of the Bible. Let me just read it to you quickly before we close. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken-down walls of our human life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our dayspring from on high and our everlasting redeemer. In Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is our lover and the bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the burning fiery furnace. Who is the fourth man? In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet carrying the gospel. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crying, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is the Savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. And in Malachi, he is the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Who is the fourth man? In Matthew, he is the Messiah. In Mark, he's the wonder worker. In Luke, he's the Son of Man. In John, he's the Son of God. In Acts, he is the evangelist co worker. In romans he is our justifier in corinthians he is god's indescribable gift in galatians he is the redeemer from the curse of the law in ephesians he is the christ of unsearchable riches in philippians he is the god who supplies all our needs in colossians he is the godhead bodily in first and second thessalonians he is our soon coming king in first and second timothy he is our mediator between god and man in titus he is our faithful pastor In Philemon, he is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, he is the great physician. First and second Peter, he is the chief shepherd who soon shall appear with a crown of unfading glory. First, second, and third John, he is the everlasting love. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. And in Revelation, he is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. (laughs) Isn't he wonderful tonight? Glory to God. Now, let me finish just with this. I I think maybe I've read this before, but it's it's apropos to what I've preached tonight. The University of Chicago Divinity School, now, this is not a Bible school. This is a university, but they have a a divinity part. Each year, they have what they call Baptist Day. And on this day, each one is to bring a lunch to be eaten outdoors in a grassy picnic area. And every Baptist Day, the school would invite one of the greatest minds to lecture in the Theological Education Center. And one year they invited Dr. Paul Tillich. Dr. Tillich spoke for two and a half hours trying to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was false. And he quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. He concluded that since there was no such thing as the historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church was groundless. It was emotional mumbo-jumbo because it was based on a relationship with a risen Christ who, in fact, never rose from the dead in any literal sense. He was then asked, there, he then asked if there was any questions. So after about 30 seconds, an old, dark, skin-haired preacher with a, short, with a head of short, cropped, woolly white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. Dr. Tillage, I have one question, he said. And all eyes turned upon him. He reached into his lunch bag, and he pulled out an apple, and he began eating it. Dr. Tillage, crunch munch. My question is simple question, crunch munch. Now I ain't never read them books you read, crunch munch. And I can't recite the scriptures in the original Greek, crunch munch. And I don't know nothing about Nabor and Heidegger, crunch munch. He finished his apple. All I want to know is this. The apple that I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? Dr. Tillage paused for a moment and answered in exemplary scholarly fashion. I cannot possibly answer that question for I haven't tasted your apple. The white-haired preacher dropped the core of his apple in his crumpled bag, looked up at Dr. Tillage, and said calmly, neither have you tasted my Jesus. (laughs) The thousand plus in attendance could not contain themselves. The auditorium erupted with applause and cheers and Dr. Tillage thanked his audience and promptly left the platform. (laughs) Oh, taste and see that the Lord is... Good. Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? What a Savior. What a wonderful, precious Lord that we have. He is everything and more than we can ever imagine. Glory to God. Can we stand and pray? Lord, whenever we consider, as we have done tonight, your greatness and your goodness and your power and all that you do and all that you are, Lord, we simply say, You are Lord, and You're Lord of our lives. And we thank You for that. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. So we bless you tonight that you are who you say you are. And Lord, we can see you in the word and we know that by experience that you are good, that you're powerful, that you're mighty. So Lord, every need we have, every problem that we have, we lay at your feet tonight because you are more than able to take care of all of it. And we'll give you the honor and we'll give you the glory. And Lord, as we leave this place tonight, as we put our head on our pillow, we thank you, Lord, that you are still on your throne. Glory to God. And you will come and judge this earth in righteousness. And we bless you for that. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast.